0: lose the cape podcast episode 178 well hey hey mamas we are trying to get back in the swing of this with some more regular podcast episodes as we venture into a little farther into the school year and a little more uh structure in our lives Okay, so this episode, I am so bummed I had to miss. I had a, what I thought was going to be a very minor surgery that wound up having some complications that pretty much knocked me on my behind for uh, a solid week and even into the next week. And I was so bummed because I had been looking forward to this interview. We'd had to reschedule it one other time because of schedule conflicts. And this was the interview I was looking forward to to kick off the season because it is with the hosts of a podcast called These Two Broads and they talk about political issues. They they look at candidates, they talk about uh, who these candidates are and what they're doing. They're really looking at the political environment as a whole. They are slightly biased, um, but I say that jokingly because they really try to give a very like, uh, you know, just a fair and balanced look. Uh, you know, we've heard that term before and it's not always fair and balanced, but try to give just a good overview of what's happening and what these candidates are standing for and, and what is going on in the political system. And I think, you know, if you've been around the podcast for a while, you understand a couple of things about this podcast. One, we want to bring awareness to topics that are important to mothers and women. We want to highlight things that are 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 important to the good of good of the social order, that are good for our community, that are good for our children, that are good for us as women. But we believe wholeheartedly that at the root of that is understanding what is going on in your community and being a part of it. And local elections, local involvement, all the way on up to the federal, to the national level are so important for you to be really in in tune with what's going on, in tune with what people are talking about, and know who you're voting for when you vote. It's becoming more and more obvious that there are some really big issues that now are more important than just Republican or Democrat. And that it's so important for us to be looking at these issues at the federal level and passing down um, initiatives that are going to make a change, the environment being the, the biggest one I can think of. It's no longer a Republican or Democrat issue. It's a humanity issue. It's a survival issue. And for those of you who think that's still a little overdramatic, you're not paying attention to what's happening. So sorry for the tough love there, but you need to pay attention to this issue. So anyway, from our perspective, the way you can... Get yourself in a position where you can make a difference, where you can make a change, where you can feel like you have a voice is to participate in the political discussion. Politics should not be a dirty word. Politics should not be an ugly situation. Politics should be understanding that there's nothing that we do from morning to night that is not somehow impacted by politics and the people that we vote for. So it's important to understand who's running. So this whole conversation that Nancy had with, um, Kelly and Sophie is really interesting. It was right after the first uh, couple of Democratic debates. So they're kind of talking about the candidates, what the main platforms are, who some of the front runners are, what the discussion is, and if the Democrats even stand a chance and what that chance might look like. I thought when I, as I listened to the discussion, it was a really interesting kind of big picture overview to talk a lot about Elizabeth Warren, which made me really happy because I'm a huge fan of hers because she is just, you just need to do some research on Elizabeth Warren. If you listen to her, if you really listen to her, to what she's saying and what she's trying to do, she's so different than Hillary Clinton. She's so different than what we've seen before in a female frontrunner. And I think I'm excited about her, but you don't have to be an Elizabeth Warren fan to enjoy and appreciate this particular podcast episode. I think it's super informative. It's very it's very low key. It's very even keeled. It's very, uh, there's no excitement or anger or yelling or anything ugly. It's just a discussion about what's happening and what's going on. I invite you to listen. I hope you'll share it. If you like our podcast, we really hope that you'll do two things for us. One, go leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher for us, please. And subscribe to us. That helps so much with, um, growing our, our, our podcast so that other people can find us we can You can like us on Facebook. You can join our group, Your Mom Squad, on Facebook, and you can share this. It would be so, so appreciated. All right, ladies I, and men, if you're listening, we hope you enjoy the show. And thanks so much for being part of the Lose the Cape um, community. You can get all the show notes at LoseTheCape.com forward slash podcast forward slash 178. And we look forward to hearing how you feel about what's going on in the political uh, standpoint right now, what's going on in the political field and, and who you're interested in learning more and seeing what happens as we approach the primaries. Have a great day. Enjoy the show.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Lose the Cape. I am Nancy, and unfortunately, I am here today without my co-host, Alexa. Couldn't be here today. But we are so, so excited to have Kelly Pollock and Sophie Walker here with us today. Um, born on the 4th of July, Kelly Pollock has always been a firecracker, leading a revolution of girls sitting at the boys' lunch table in second grade and founded Young Independents in high school. Since earning her master's, Kelly has spent the past 15 years as a university administrator. Kelly is the co-host of the Two Broad Talking Politics podcast and the director of content for DemCast. She lives in Chicago with her husband and two sons. Then we have Sophie Walker, who lives in Madison, Wisconsin, with her husband, their three-year-old son, and their two beloved cats. After graduating with an MA from the Divinity School at the University of Chicago, she went on to become a technical writer at a large healthcare software company and is the co host with Kelly of the Two Broad Talking Politics podcast. She enjoys cold weather, biblical exegesis. I don't know if I can (laughs) pronounce that. Jesus, carbohydrates, and explaining to people why they're wrong. Oh my God, I love that. (laughs) I think we're going to have a great conversation today. Okay, so I know that your podcast started um, after the Women's March.
2: Yeah, so we actually started just about two years ago. So September 13th, 2017 was our first episode.
1: And so did you go to the March in Washington, D.C. or you went to a local one?
2: We went to local. I was at the Chicago one. Sophie, you were at the Madison one?
3: I was, yeah.
1: Yeah, and um, so after that, that kind of just, what, lit a fire under your ass, right? <laughs> yeah, So did you two already know each other? Like, how did you come to be um, co host of the podcast?
3: Yeah, we met each other when I was in graduate school, mm-hmm. um, and Kelly was an administrator, <laughs> um, and I got a student job in her department, and we met each other, and, you know, I liked her, and I liked her kids and her husband, and dad, they were really cool. And so we were Facebook friends after that. And then um, in 2017, uh, I was writing something on Facebook, a political sarcastic podcast.
2: And I believe it was a post about Mitch McConnell.
3: I think it was. Yeah. Um, and I was sort of ranting, as people do on social media. and a <laughs> You friend ranting? Of mine, <laughs> a friend of mine uh, from college on health he uh, suggested, he was like, you should have a podcast. And Kelly said, hey, I would like to do a podcast too. And I was like, that sounds great. So we got together and we started Two Broads talk Talking Polly. the rest is history.
2: <laughs> and the rest is history, <laughs> indeed,
1: yes.
3: <laughs>
1: um, so let's get right into it, because um, this is really what we're most excited to talk about, is to get your take on the current political environment Um, there have been so many debates so many debates and the field keeps getting narrower and narrower so um, what is your take on what's happening right now with the democratic debate
2: well so you know we're going into this next debate with 10 people still on the stage and then the October debate is actually going to have 11 people on the stage because Tom Steyer has already qualified now for the October debate uh, so it's still a lot of people, you know, it's it's narrowing but <laughs> not really and there's still people who Haven't made the debate who are still in the race for reasons I don't understand like Wayne Messum, who is the mayor of Miramar, Florida is apparently still running. No one knew this But uh, he, he hasn't technically dropped out. So it's narrowing but probably not quite enough and really when you look at the numbers there's really only about five people who could legitimately win, I think, unless something major upends what's going on. It's, it's really narrowed down to five and really more like three at this point. I don't know, Sophie, does that match what you are thinking?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think it's pretty clearly down to, um, at least in my opinion, I think Biden, Warren, um, Sanders, Buttigieg, and uh, Harris.
2: Yeah. And really, I don't see any path to Sanders winning, uh, short of something happening. I was just going to say, like, I don't consider him a serious candidate
1: at all. And, um, you know, and Biden, I kind of can see him being president, but I also feel like he has demonstrated um, a lot more recently
2: that he's out of touch,
1: I've well, i so, a lot of really stupid
2: things. <laughs> <laughs> and Sophie and I are both uh, publicly big fans of Warren, so you're not going to find any argument <laughs> with us on those points. Um, but I think, you know, I was just talking to someone today about how when you look at the numbers and the trends in the numbers, so... Biden's biggest day ever was the day he announced. And his numbers have gone down and then just flattened since then. Sanders has been in essentially the same number since he entered the race and has gone nowhere. And it is not a big enough number to win. There, There's basically no path. If he can't get more people, he can't win. Biden could maybe win with the the support that he has. Warren has gone up and up and up. Uh, Harris went, like, way up after the first debate and then leveled back down. And Buttigieg had that, like, really big spike and then has sort of flattened since then. So, I mean, I I just – and I don't see anyone beyond that. Like, I love Amy Klobuchar. I think she's great. I've interviewed her, but I don't see any path to her winning. I don't – I think that Jennifer Rubin just wrote a piece today in the New York Times about how Amy Klobuchar could win, but I don't see it. I don't see how that Uh, – Do you think that she – I could, to be honest, until the
1: debates, I didn't really know who she was. So do you think visibility is part of the issue?
3: With I them? think visibility is part of the issue, but I also just feel like Amy Klobuchar's fighting for sort of natural voters with other candidates who the people who might prefer her like better. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking for a moderate candidate, you already have Joe Biden, who has better name recognition and, um, is electable by which many people subconsciously mean a straight white guy. Um, (laughs) and if you're looking for, um, you know, a Midwestern progressive, you already have Buttigieg. Uh, if you're looking for, you know, the first woman president, we already have Harris and uh, Warren, and we had Gillibrand before. So I just, I think her constituency isn't as clear as everybody else's constituency. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's almost like there's like a, um kind of like a tokenism at mm-hmm. play here. Like we yeah. have a representative from, you know, the possible, you know, streams of identity or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And, you know, Harris to me has been interesting. Um, I just moved to California a year ago. So um, I really didn't know that much about her. I was, like, excited, you know. I was like, oh, yay, she's Black, she's a woman, she's, you know, gonna kick ass. But then, um, you know, people here in California, uh, like, a lot of people really hate her mm-hmm. because of her track record with the criminal justice system when she was the attorney general. So it's been interesting to kind of, like, you know, like, kind of get that perspective
2: yes now like local (laughs) if you'd like the kids perspective my five-year-old has an enormous crush on kamala harris i heard about this no idea why biggest crush in the world so he and i are actually going to go see kamala on friday i'm paying money to her campaign to get in the room so he can I don't even know if he'll get to meet her or just see her across the room, but, uh, but he's just a huge, huge fan of hers. He can't tell you why. He can't articulate it, but...
1: <laughs> he just, like, built that connection with her, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's helped that... Uh, so, she actually does know who my son is, who Arthur is, and uh, Kamala's husband, Doug Emhoff, has uh, made videos for Arthur on Arthur's birthday, made a video like happy birthday, Arthur, you know, we're so glad you're in the the camp, and when he was in Chicago, and Doug was in Chicago, we went and met him, and Arthur got a hug from Doug, and got to take a picture, so like, that all feeds it, you know, my five-year-old doesn't know that most five-year-olds don't get this kind of attention from political candidates, <laughs> but to him, it's like, oh yeah, this political candidate knows who I am, so she's the best thing ever, and he actually tore down my Elizabeth Warren sign out of our window yesterday, and was like, I'm not rooting for Elizabeth Warren. I'm rooting rooting for Kamala Harris.
1: (laughs) Oh my God, a family divided. (laughs) So, um, oh my God, that's so funny. Yeah, I did hear about this from Sarah. (laughs) I was hoping you would tell that story. (laughs) Um, So, in terms of like what's happening during the debates, you know, the language that they're using, that the the topic that they're talking about, What, um, what is your take on that? Um, like, for example, I would like have been complaining that, um, I think it was like the very first debate, I don't think he's, de Blasio is not in the debates no, anymore, he right? But, like in the very first debate, um, You know, one of the things that, like, really struck me about de Blasio is that, like, he was really trying to capitalize on the fact that he's, like, married to a black woman and has a black son. And then I also felt like a lot of the candidates were really positioning themselves as, like, the anti-Trump. Like, Trump does this, I'm gonna do the opposite. So, you know, I'm not Trump, vote for me.
2: Yeah, I think that Warren was the one who notably in the first debate didn't talk about Trump. Everyone else did and was talking about, you know, the stuff that Trump does and why he's terrible and why they can beat him. And Warren didn't. She was just very much on like, this is who I am. But none of them get a whole lot of time to talk, right? I mean, they get these like 30 seconds here, 30 seconds there, and maybe strung together, you get five minutes or something. I guess this next debate's gonna be three hours, so maybe they'll get slightly more time to talk. But I think a lot of it has just been about there's so many people on the stage, and they're just trying to stand out. They're just trying to get some moments where somebody notices them and remembers what they were saying. And so that I think is what is driving more of it than strategy about how best to position their policies or anything like that. I think so much of it is just a, Hey, look at me, I'm over here. Don't forget I exist.
3: Mm -hmm. I think that's true. And I think one thing I was really interested in seeing, um, from the, was particularly how the women position themselves. Um, women often kind of are extra scrutinized on the debate stage. And one thing I thought was really interesting was in the first debate, Elizabeth Warren was like basically the big serious candidate in her debate, right? It was split up into two debates and there was one debate that had like a bunch of uh, candidates that are pulling at like 2% and then Elizabeth Warren. And then the second debate had all the other uh, first year candidates and Elizabeth Warren, I thought was very careful about not talking too much. Right? She could have taken over the debate stage and literally just talked the whole time because she was really the only person who had all of these really specific substantive plans to address the questions that she was being asked. But I thought she was making very conscious choices to not talk too much because women often are perceived as having talked more than they actually have, Um, and I thought that was a really strategic and smart choice, but also it made me really sad that she had to make that choice. Yeah.
1: I mean, I definitely noticed that there was um, a difference in the way the women were presenting themselves and the way that the men were presenting themselves. And there was um, also like a moment where you could see very clearly an incident of men trying to talk over women. I think it was Amy Klobuchar and I can't remember who she was engaging with, but you could see her like getting frustrated cause she was like trying to make a point and she was being spoken over by a male candidate. So it's just interesting to see that like on the, you know, <laughs> on the national stage, you know, instead of just like in a conference room or, you know, whatever. So um but I am just like I admittedly don't know a lot about how they organize these to be. And I feel like um they definitely could have had less people up on the stage, but that they are interested in turning this into a spectacle, and and like kind of like a um, like a jousting match where like you have to pit like these few women against like
3: all these men. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think that, so part of why I think the DNC allowed so many people in the first two debates was that they were fighting this impression from 2016 that they were rigging it somehow for Hillary Clinton. And so they didn't want to make it seem like they were choosing winners. And so they just let nearly everybody on the stage for the first two debates. And it was too many people. I mean, it's too many people.
1: They had to do it over two nights.
2: Yeah so you know I I think there's some value to that to letting people have a chance to have people see who they are like you could have a breakout moment that then that helps your fundraising and that helps your name recognition and maybe you can do something with it. I don't think we've really seen that happen that much the people who are having breakout moments are people who are big already like Kamala Harris but in theory you could and so it you know, there's going to be like 12 sets of debates. So there will be plenty of time to get to where it's just four people on stage, hopefully, God willing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, you know, we're really early. There are a lot of people who are paying no attention at all to the presidential race right now. I don't know who those people are. I'm not actually friends with them. But I hear there are people who don't, you know, spend all the time in the world paying attention to the race this far out. Yeah. I
1: mean, it just so. And then, like, in contrast, you have, like, basically nobody on the Republican side. I mean, I had a moment where I was like, wait, when are they going to schedule the Republican debate? And then somebody was like, well, there's nobody to debate with. So, (laughs) but now we have like Mark Sanford coming out. And then, um, and I like thought that he was like the only one, but then I was reading an article in one of the Chicago papers about how there's actually two other people running, and I don't know who they are or what their names are, so that says a lot. Um, You know, I think that let's talk about Mark Sanford for a second, because he did say that he, he basically said that he doesn't think that he's going to be able to win. Mm -hmm. So,
2: Well, it's pretty hard to win when the Republican Party won't even really let them compete. They're like canceling primaries and things. They want Trump to be the nominee. They don't want anyone to have a chance to beat him. And so there's not, I don't think there's any path. There's no path anyway, even if they let it be a fair race for anyone to beat Trump for the the Republican nomination. And that would be practically unheard of for an incumbent presidential candidate. Has that ever happened? We need a presidential history here. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I
2: didn't think so. And an incumbent doesn't lose their Primary, like they just
0: don't.
2: Yeah. So it wouldn't have happened anyway. So I think it's wise for Mark Sanford to acknowledge <laughs> that he has no chance. Um, but on the other hand, like I, I don't know. I, I, I could see certain people being able to make a good case for running just on the merits that it's sort of ne- never trump people or wanting to bring the Republican Party back to something. I don't. Mark Sanford's just like a joke at this point. I don't know what he thinks he's going to be able to accomplish unless he thinks this is somehow going to rehabilitate his image after the whole Appalachian trail debacle.
3: I think there are different way, different things that primary challengers can accomplish other than getting the nomination. I think some people um, get into it. Like I think Pat Buchanan was probably a good example of a person who like got into the race in order to like push his particular agenda to the forefront and didn't actually think he was really gonna like get the nomination. He was just trying to bring up issues that were important to him and like force the person who was actually going to be the nominee to come out in, in favor of them. Um, I think Mark Sanford could be a good focal point for never Trumpers. Um, A lot of people who are like real conservatives, because Trump is not, he's done, a lot of conservative things, but he's not financially conservative. He's exploded the deficit. Um, he absolutely doesn't mind, you know, big government when it aligns with things that he wants to do. And so there is this sort of undercurrent in the Republican Party, small, but it's there, of people who hate Trump. And I think one of the most interesting polls that I saw recently was, yep, yeah, Trump has huge, really high approval ratings in the Republican party, but he also has a sizable number of people. And I think it was like 30 to 40% who said that they would consider voting for a different nominee over Trump. So I think there at this point, a lot of, um, a lot of approval rating polling is kind of like, uh, more of a statement for Republicans saying, no, I support the Republican Party. I support Trump because he's a Republican. But actually, I think there are a lot of Republicans in the Republican Party who would go for another actual conservative candidate over Trump. So that's one place that I think Mark Sanford could actually really make a splash. Now, whether or not he continues on and runs as an independent in the general that's gonna be a, a much more impactful kind of race if he does that. That, he can siphon votes away from Trump. And Trump can't attack him on the things that make him ridiculous, namely his, his, uh, sex scandal, his, um, affair. Because Trump has had many as well, so it's- Trump
2: not attack him on that anyway. <laughs> he
3: will, but oh, no. he's kind of in that unique position where Trump can't attack him for something because Trump has done it and done it worse and more publicly. <laughs> so I think he's got a lot of potential. I just don't know if he's gonna live up to it in terms of affecting the race.
1: The people who um, the people who feel who voted for Trump but feel betrayed by him, is that enough? what he is that enough for people to consider? crossing the aisle, so to speak, because if there's no other candidate, and they don't like Trump, is that enough for them to vote for, like, say, one.
3: I think it depends. Are they people yeah. who are actual conservative Republicans? In that case, no. I think the the best case scenario there is to get them to be demoralized so that they stay home. Um but I don't think they're going to vote for a Democrat. Now, are they the people who are, there was a, a fair number of people in Trump's coalition that elected him, um, that are people who just don't pay attention to politics, don't really care, um, but are actually moderates and, uh, swing voters and just thought, oh, why not give this guy a chance? He's he seems like not a typical politician. I personally know several people who did that and, and voted for him because they didn't, they don't watch the news. They don't, you know, look at political Twitter, they hadn't heard, they didn't even know about the Access Hollywood video, they had no idea. So they weren't plugged in. And they looked at the two candidates and said, Oh, Hillary Clinton is a typical politician. If Donald Trump, he's really going to shake things up, and voted for Donald Trump. They're not real conservative Republicans. And they could switch. And I do know several all of those people that I know who did that have found to switch in, in 2020. So I think that they're, it's going to depend on like, why a person voted for trump in the first place whether or not we okay. can pull them over
2: but i think the important thing to note there is that because the people we can pull over aren't the conservatives mm-hmm. there is no value in nominating a moderate democrat mm-hmm. now I, like if you want to vote for a moderate democrat because you are a moderate democrat then <laughs> great but in terms of winning the general election that doesn't win you more voters it just doesn't like you need the, the thing that's going to win people over to the other side is someone who excites them, mm-hmm. who, whatever their, you know, sort of political beliefs are that excites them, that makes them think like this person cares about me. And what you can do very clearly in the election is win a lot of people who didn't vote in 2016. And some of those people didn't vote because they couldn't and there was voter suppression and all sorts of things going on. But at least some of those people just stayed home because mm-hmm. they didn't want to vote for either of the choices. And if you give them someone they love, they will come out and vote. And you encourage them to vote and you help them register and all those sorts of things. So I think that's the important message is can we win people over from Trump? Yes, but we can't win them over by just putting forth the most boring candidate we can think of and hoping they think like, oh, okay, well, that's a nice, boring, centrist candidate. I'll vote for that person because that's not the way it works. It didn't work in uh, 2004, <laughs> <laughs> all. it didn't work in, uh, North Carolina 9th District last night, like, it, it mm-hmm. doesn't work that way.
3: And it didn't work in 2018. We lost, the Democrats that we lost from the Senate were all moderate Democrats, like, yeah. people aren't going to come out and vote for them, in- and there are strong Democrats in every state, but they're not going to come out and vote for somebody who is literally the entire reason they were chosen is to appeal to people who are going to vote Republican anyway. Yeah
2: whether or not the country should be more moderate is a totally different question. That's just, it's not the country we are living in right now. There, There is no one in the middle. <laughs> so appealing to the middle gets you nowhere.
1: All right, so is this like what it's come to now? Is that like the only way to change things is to be very extreme? <laughs> it feels like, you know, like even if, I mean, I don't know, you know, I mean, I consider myself, um, in between moderate and liberal, you know, but um, I don't know. I guess I like don't know what to do with the feeling that things are only going to change if there's some kind of spectacle. I mean, it just seems really just not good, you know, and it makes me worried, you know, because I remember the extreme anxiety I felt for a whole week after Trump got elected, and I just have moments where, like, I like get that anxiety again, and I'm just like, oh, shit! Like, I don't know what I'm gonna do if he gets reelected. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> yes. yeah. So, I, on the one hand, I would say yes. I mean, things are more extreme, are sort of more divided now. There is a big problem. People, uh, you know, people are just being obstructionist and not willing to vote for the other side just because they don't yeah. want to say they're voting for the other side. But the other thing I would say is that a lot of the things that are considered like extreme liberal, extreme progressive really aren't. That has just been something that the Republicans have been telling us for so long that we've started to believe. And so things like universal background checks for gun purchases. Like that's not an extreme position. 90% of the public believes that it would be yeah. a good idea. And so it's just sort of the the way the messaging has been done that makes some of these things that are just logical, practical things for us to do seem like extreme. And so I, I think that we have to think about it in that way. So if you're voting for a really left-wing progressive, you're probably just voting for someone who has the kinds of ideas and policies that a lot of people actually would like or would like at some level. And it, you know, just because it's being labeled socialist, doesn't mean it actually is socialist. Right. Uh, it's
3: interesting. I, when I was a political science minor in college and one of, I read some really good literature on, uh, people's perceptions of where their political beliefs lie. And it's kind of like how everyone thinks they're in the middle class. How studies show that like even super rich people and people living below the poverty line, the majority of people in the country think that they're middle class. Wow. It's kind of like that with politics. The majority of people think that most people agree with their beliefs. But actually, there isn't a lot of room in the center. Most people do fall into these two political categories. Um, you know, most people, you know, disagree with the party that they usually vote with on, on one or two issues at least. But most people do have beliefs that align with at least some of the beliefs of one or both of the political parties. So people perceive that there is this huge middle ground in the United States that isn't really there.
1: (laughs) I mean, I could tell you that, like, after um, the election, I was really blown away by the number of people I knew that voted for Trump. I was like, wow, I don't know you at all. Like, I thought we were friends. Like, how can we be so how could I not have known this about you that you are the type of person (laughs) that would vote for Trump? I mean, like, that's really like the only way that I can describe it, that you have to be a certain type of person to vote for him because he is um, so um, not presidential, put it nicely. (laughs) So, so, yeah, I definitely was definitely under the perception that like I – was like in this bubble and I thought that like all these people thought the same way as me because like we lived in the same community. We, we seemed to have similar values and stuff. And then I was like, that just kind of like blew it wide open. And I like really, you know, was, um, I don't know. I like definitely lost my footing. Because now I was like, okay, so basically I like can't trust anybody now because I don't know who believes what and they've been hiding it or like we just don't like to talk about it or, you know, and I know that like everybody had different reasons for voting for the candidate that they voted for. And, um, you know, so the people I know that voted for Trump, I know that it was because they thought that he was going to um, help them protect their money. Mm. And so I'm, like, really curious about whether or not – and, like, these are people that, like, they're – I mean, they're fairly well-off people, but their wealth is, like, a drop in the bucket for somebody like Trump. So I'm like, you know, Trump did not see you as a rich person. I'm sorry. You you know, your $300,000, a year job is nothing. So I'm very curious about, I think, what you were saying, Sophie, about, you know, those people like looking at the reason for why they voted for Trump and how that's going to impact the decisions that they make for the next election.
2: Yeah. And that's why, you know, it would have been interesting. I think Howard Schultz was a terrible candidate, but you know, it would have been interesting if there had been interesting from a political science perspective, not something I want, mind you, (laughs) if there had been sort of a legitimate third party or independent kind of candidate, who who was sort of a good uh, conservative who would have talked, who would have been able to speak to those people. You know, what what would that mean? They'd probably in a heartbeat move away from Trump, right? If the reasons that they're voting for Trump is that he's going to protect their money and clearly he's not doing that. I mean, I, I don't know if they're looking at their retirement portfolio, but mine is not going up right now. You know, if uh, if they had someone like Howard Schultz or, you know, Mitt Romney or somebody to vote for. Presumably, they would rather vote for someone like that.
1: So, okay. so what does that mean? Does that mean that like we can't hold out too much hope for twenty twenty?
2: Oh, we're gonna win. Democrats are gonna win. I'm completely sure of this. Uh, I have to be because I don't think I can keep moving through the world. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> so I am. Only so the question of whether it's gonna be somebody like Biden or whether it's gonna be. Um, one.
2: Yeah. So my fear is that we will nominate someone like Biden, and then I will be worried that we won't win. I mm-hmm. think if we nominate someone like Warren, or let's just be honest, if we nominate Warren, is what I'm hoping, that uh, that there will be enough people excited enough that we can really energize yeah. our base and we can get people. I mean. Warren and a lot of the Democratic candidates, actually, although I don't know if this is true of Biden, they have people going out and canvassing already. They're building the the network. They've got people encouraging their friends to join the campaign. And we're, you know, a year and a half out from a year out, a little over a year out from the general election. And so I, I think we can do this. I really think we can pull it off. But I do worry that if we nominate someone either like Biden, who I'm afraid people just won't be energized enough about, or Sanders, who I think they will be energized negatively about. But there's
1: no way, I'm sorry, but there's no way that Sanders is going to
2: No, no, I don't see it happening. <laughs> you no, know, like, um, I
1: just, like, just, um,
2: yeah. Yeah, so those, those I'd be more concerned. But if we nominate Warren or even Buttigieg or Harris, I'm really confident that Democrats can pull this out assuming that this is a fair election, and that's a big assumption. I so think, what, is the, what is the difference between um, Warren running
1: now and Clinton running in 2016?
2: We all think, woke up.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I think there, there's, there are two differences. There's a different um, atmosphere in which we're going to run this race. Okay. Um, and then there's a different uh, – the candidate is very different. I think people look at Warren and they think, oh, she's an older white woman and so was Clinton. But Warren appeals to different can- different uh, groups of people than Clinton did. Clinton appealed um, more to the Biden type of voter. Okay. Um, Warren is able to appeal to the Bernie Sanders voter and also not necessarily the more moderate wing of the party, but the more plugged in wing of the party. The really interesting thing to watch uh, over in the polls over the last few months has been how support has shifted among people who are plugged into the election and people who aren't. So people who are Elizabeth Warren voters are much more likely to be high information uh, voters right now. They're more likely to be people who are paying attention to what's going on. And as people pay attention to what's going on, her share of the vote goes up. So it, it's pretty clear looking at the data that a lot of people, and I include my husband in this. My husband was a Bernie Sanders supporter who switched. Um, look at the candidates and once they're actually plugged in, they they hear candidates' names and they say, oh, I recognize that candidate. Yeah, sure, that's the person I'm, I'm supporting. But then once they become I'm involved in the campaign, they start watching debates, they become interested, they look at websites and stuff, they're moving to Elizabeth Warren. And that, to me, suggests that she has a pretty broad appeal across the Democratic Party in a way that could unite two wings that were sort of at odds in 2016.
2: Yeah, um, that's, well, that just made me feel so hopeful, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, and look, I, we could write whole books on what's different between Elizabeth Warren and uh Hillary Clinton, and I love Hillary Clinton to death, but Elizabeth Warren is an incredibly good campaigner in a way that Hillary Clinton was not. Hillary Clinton would have been a wonderful, amazing president. She was not a good campaigner. But Elizabeth Warren, there is just something very natural about her campaign style. You see her at a town hall. You see her talk to people one-on-one. She connects with them. The, the uh, you know, professor part of her you know people are like oh she's so professorial but in a good way she can explain these really complex things break them down in a way that everybody understands and I think the other really big difference right now is that we are in a very sort of anti-billionaire millionaire (laughs) mindset right now like I think we could a lot of people could walk around with shirts that say eat the rich and people would be like yeah yeah let's do that (laughs) you know it It's very telling that the the people, the Wall Street people are very scared of Elizabeth Warren. And I think that makes people really excited. They're like, yay, we're gonna get money back for the people. And you know, it it, it's gonna go both ways and and all of that. But like I I just think we're in a different time than we were four years ago. And Elizabeth Warren in a lot of very positive ways is a very different person than Hillary Clinton was. Hillary Clinton, if you're listening, we still want you on the podcast.
1: But I um, I guess when I hear that, I wonder, because I think about um, how the thing that appealed to, I mean, we are all like three white women living in a fairly, um, you know, liberal, like, kind of communities, probably. Um, and when I think about um, the people who voted for Trump, and the region of the country that they're from, and like their economic backgrounds and stuff. And I feel like a lot of people were um, voted for Trump because they saw him as like this really rich, successful businessman. And they were kind of like taken in by that. So it's interesting to hear you say that there's kind of like this anti-millionaire mindset. And I just wonder if that is um, a regional thing. Or if those people that voted for Trump because they thought that he was a really rich, successful businessman um, have had that illusion shadowed enough
2: for them. Some of them have. I mean, Trump has been... Trump has been terrible for the whole economy, but he's been especially terrible for the regions that voted for him. Farmers are really hurting right now. Manufacturing is not coming back the way he promised it would. And so you know, whatever they thought was going to happen, it's not happening. And so they've got sort of the proof right there. Will that be enough for them to vote for a Democrat? I don't know. But I do know that they can look at the, the track record now. I mean, Trump had no track record in politics prior to 2016, so there was nothing for anyone to look at and say what he would do, but it's very obvious now that he's not doing the things that he promised that he would do.
3: I also think it's important to remember that a lot of Trump's message was, I'm a rich guy, therefore I understand what these rich people controlling the country think, and then I can use that mentality to drain the swamp. I think that Trump, when we think of Trump's populism, a lot of the time we think about his, like, racist, xenophobic, like, demagoguery, but a lot of the populism that attracted people to him was sort of a quasi-economic populism. He kept saying he was going to do stuff with infrastructure. He never did, and he will never. But he kept saying that, and he kept saying, you know, I'm going to bring back these jobs for people. He, he, a lot of his message was economic populism. Um, he just had smart enough advisors to have him say it in a way that also didn't threaten real conservatives, people who are, are worried about, you know, their money. Um, but I think that that is another, uh, strength of Warren's campaign is that she also has that populist bent. Um, and so in 2016, Trump's populism was was sort of at odds with Clinton's sort of more cerebral, um, policy-driven plans, and I think Warren has that nice balance of, like, specific policy, but also a populist appeal, much in the same sort of vein as Trump, but, like, more honest.
1: Uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, I, um, I think this conversation has been really good, because I think that a lot of people are feeling very insecure and unsure about what's going to happen next year, um, they're not really sure how to make decisions about candidates um, and they're not sure if it's better for them to stay home or to get other people to stay home or actually show up at the polls. You know, I think about like the um, the, the minors that um, Trump screwed over like his very first, like month in office or whatever, all those minors that have voted for him. Is it better for those people to stay home or is it better to try and convince them to vote for a democratic candidate? You know, like, what, what do we do moving forward? And I um, think that that would be probably a good way to close out this interview. What can we do to move forward and kind of um, make sure that we get what we want next year?
2: Yeah, so I am always going to be of the belief that everyone voting is good. So we should want everyone to be voting and we need to sell the message that what our candidates offer is what is best for the American people writ large. And so uh, I'm always gonna be in favor of candidates that inspire everyone to go vote. <laughs> um, but I think that the sort of larger answer to that question is we need to be talking. You know, we, so many people were taught for so long, like you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics. And I think that's changing. And I think that needs to change. Like you were surprised by how many people you knew who voted for Trump. Well, we should get to the point where we're not surprised by people's political beliefs because we talk about it and we say, well, why do you believe that? And let's talk about this. And did you know this? And it, it, it puts a lot of burden on us to be very well informed so we can have those discussions without being afraid someone's going to be like well what about this and you're like i don't know the answer to that so we have to be well informed we have to be unafraid to be talking about all of this stuff of course if there are situations where it is unsafe for you to be talking about politics you know don't put yourself in unsafe situations but but in 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 situations that are safe talk about it and talk about it a lot and talk about why it's important and talk about how your family was personally hurt by this and, and we can do that. It's not easy. It's never going to be easy. But I think that is the way forward, is talk politics, because we are two broads who talk politics. So that's what we think.
1: <laughs> Speaking of that, <laughs> so I know that um, when people listen to your podcast, that is a great source of information, not just about what's happening nationally, but what is happening locally too like not just the presidential stage but you know um you know the congressional race and things like that and so um so we have your podcast that we can listen to and what else do you see as a good reliable um i don't know if there's such a thing as like mutual source of information but you know something that is like not like too far on either end like what are your favorite sources of information when it comes to um, learning about the issues in the election and candidates and stuff?
2: So I strongly believe in reading as many sources as possible. So I have a saved tab set on my browser of I believe 20 different news sources. Uh, and I just sort of, I, I have a plug-in on Chrome where I can say, like, open all of these. And then I just go through all of them and say, what's the the top news story on each one? Because I think that is the answer. It's not that there is one source that's ever going to give us the best information. It's that mm-hmm. making sure you are not locked into one source. You are not watching just Fox News. You are reading all these different places. Because if there is misinformation out there, you're going to get the correct information if you're paying attention to a lot of sources. Uh, there I, you know, have my own way of doing that, but there are plenty of news aggregator apps where you can get, you know, Washington Post and New York Times and The Atlantic and Vox and a bunch of different sources and just get the aggregate of all of those. And anytime you can see a bunch of different sources, it's going to be helpful in in sort of figuring out what's really going on.
3: And I I agree with that and I'd add to that there is a really good chart, I think Media Matters has it, about um, the reliability and um, the particular, p- p- yeah, the potential, um, sort of partisan spin of a huge variety of different news sources, and I would just say being aware of the particular lean of your news sources is in and of itself important, because there isn't such a thing really as a neutral source, every journalist is a person, and Even, I mean, in today's world, even truth has a spin now. Like, even truth has a political um, advantage or a political cast to it, right? Like, we know that global warming is happening, and yet um, this scientific evidence that we have before us has been politicized. So everything has a political bent, and I think it's important to know where your news source is coming from and how reliable it is. And then sort of have those that aggregate of sources, and just know that you're getting information from um, sources that tend to lean right, or sources that tend to lean left. Just being aware of that, I think, is really important.
1: Uh, um, I mean, that's definitely true. I mean, even when I was like trying to um, find out more information about um, Valerie Plame, who just came out with that. Um, campaign video I had to read a couple of different news sources because there were some controversies in that you know because she like in that she makes it a point to say that she's Jewish or like come you know so if you read one article it like you know um kind of mentioned it and then there was another article that was like well actually she was raised Protestant she didn't know that she was Jewish until until she was an adult so that really reframes the whole video like you know um so I yes I think that is excellent um advice um so and I know that like a lot of the moms out there that are listening to this are probably asking themselves how do I find time to read all these different sources of information but I can tell you that for me I end up probably just not really reading anything deeply, but to kind of like just skimming it to see like what the different perspectives are. But I don't know if, you know, if you have any yeah.
2: about that. I, I think if you spend a, a little bit, I, I'm a news junkie, I'll admit it. Um, but I think if you spend a little bit of time sort of, you know, spend a week or two where you do put that extra time in to sort of read all of those sources, you'll get a good sense for, you know what, I'm reading all of these sources, but at the end of the day, I could have just read this one and it would have told me the same thing that all of those different sources told me. You know, and so you're going to have a few sources of information that you trust to either have the right information right off the bat or at least put corrections up if they make mistakes. (laughs) Uh, You know, and so I think, like, I really like Vox.com. Vox uh, does really, they're a little bit left leaning, but they do really in depth research. And so if I can look at a piece that they're writing and say, this has 25 links in it, and I know what all their sources are, and you know, maybe they come to the right conclusion, maybe they don't, but most likely it's just going to be open-ended. They're going to be like, the seven things you should know about, and then, you know, you can read them. Yeah,
1: so. I like them too, and you said B-O-X, right, Matt? No. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> right. yeah, I love to no, no. some people be like, did she just say box? <laughs> did box, she
2: yes, box. box. What? <laughs> You know, and and so I think you'll figure out for yourself what your source is that you keep coming back to. And, you know, just frankly, like the formatting of certain websites, I can't handle. <laughs> they just don't look nice. I don't like looking at them, so I don't go back to them no matter how good their news is. So I think, you know, if you just take a little bit of time to do that sort of work up front, then you can streamline it. Afterward, you can say like, "I'm just going to read the Atlantic every uh, day." It's going to tell me what I need to know. That definitely feels less overwhelming.
3: Yeah, <laughs> and you don't necessarily have to rely just on written print journalism either. Right. One of my I had a good friend in graduate school who actually did a linguistic study of a number of large media outlets and found that the most neutral one that she could find was uh, PBS and NPR. Mm. So, oh, yeah. uh, listening to NPR can be a great way to get your news. Your kids can be running around. Um, you can watch PBS News. I watch PBS News hour with my three year old. He thinks it's cool. Oh. <laughs> um, and then, you know, if there's anything graphic or or the president drops a word you don't want your kids to hear, then, you know, that kind of sucks. But like things are going on in the world and you can talk to your kids about them and you can sort of make it part of your life with your kids too.
2: Lots of learning <laughs> moments lately.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I tend to, like, you know, gravitate towards PBS or even to C-SPAM. I just, like, I don't want commentary. I just want to know <laughs> what people are saying, yeah. you know. So, um, okay, great. Thank you so much. I know that you ladies need to get back to work. <laughs> so, I'm going to let you go. Um, I'm so sorry that Alexa couldn't be here. I know that she was, like, super disappointed. But we are so thankful to um, have you guys on the show, and we will put all of your information into the show notes. But the website is too broad talking politics.com. That's right. That's right. All right. Awesome. Any partying words for us before we go? Always vote. <laughs> yeah. Always vote. No matter what. Perfect. Thank you, I think you to so wear much. <laughs>
2: walk through snow, go vote. All
1: right great message thank you so much bye mm-hmm. bye